Thank you, Jessica Nisi. What a what an honor it is to be in a church where our young people have such hearts to worship God. Amen. Um, just a few reminders for we get into Psalm 25 this morning. There are still some books on the back table there that are free. I haven't looked at all of them, but there are a few good ones out there. There's um, Operation World, which is a great way to pray for the nations. It tells you about each country, how many Christians and, and the population and the different religions that are there. It's just a great tool if you have a heart for the nations and for prayer to have. There's probably about a half a dozen back there. And then there's a book called Why So Many Gods, I believe it is. And that's a book that talks about all the different religions, gives you descriptions of them. And that's a good resource. So there's a lot of good resources to have uh, back there if you want to take a look. Um, appreciate that. Well, we are once again in the book of Psalms. And the series is entitled iTunes because the Psalms are basically the worship book for the Old Testament saints. These are the words they sang, just like we have opened with worship. These are the words that they composed and put to music and they sang as their form of worship to the Lord in praise. And the purpose for this series is for us to deepen our sense and our experience of worship. And so the Psalms give us a resource to draw from as we enter into a time of worship. And that's why on communion Sundays, the sermon goes before our worship time. So, so after the worship time, um, after the sermon, we'll enter into a time of worship where we can reflect on what God has spoken to our hearts and then worship the Lord through the fellowship of communion. But today we are in Psalm 25. And in this psalm, the psalmist is singing a song about three different things, really. He's singing about uh, seeking God's guidance. He's singing about God's ability to deliver him. And then he's also singing about the idea of guilt and forgiveness. So I'm just going to go ahead and read all 22 verses, though we will only camp with one of those themes this morning. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him and he makes known to them his covenant. 
My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. This psalm is entitled, it's a psalm of David, and it's entitled, Teach Me Your Paths. It's an excellent psalm to look at if you are seeking God's guidance for your life. There are many principles to be found. Maybe that'll be a part two for next time. I don't know, but David needs guidance in here. He's asking for for guidance from the Lord and direction. But that's not the portion of Psalm that I want to camp on this morning or examine this morning. I think another developing theme and a powerful theme and cry from David's heart regards the, the weight of the guilt that he feels. The weight of the guilt that is upon him. And in this Psalm, he is praying, crying out for a relief of the guilt for his sin. So in verse 7, he asked God to remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. In verse 11, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. And then verse 18, consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. David in, in the midst of also rejoicing and thanking that this is a God who knows how to deliver him from the net. He's also experiencing what many of us, all of us, I would say, have experienced at one time or another or to one degree or another. And that is this, the, the burden, the sensation of what it feels like to try to live life and plot on with this sense of guilt with a knowing within us of a wrongdoing. David's guilt, he says, is great. Perhaps you have sensed a great sense of guilt. I know I certainly have. And guilt is this realization of wrongdoing. It's a realization that there's a standard out there, uh, maybe a personal standard or a universal standard that we have transgressed, we've broken, we've let it down in some kind of way. It's a realization and a feeling, one or the other or both. So it's, it's a knowledge of wrongdoing. And when we enter into this season or phase or moment of wrongdoing, we immediately sense our guilt. And it's not a good feeling. It's not a pleasant feeling. And because it's uncomfortable, we seek relief from it by nature. We want to get out from this because we feel bad. We feel bad about ourselves. We feel bad for ourselves or we might feel bad for the principle that we've transgressed to the person that we violated or or harmed. It's just a a bad knowing and a bad feeling that can't has a has a tendency to stick around. I kind of think of guilt, the feeling of guilt. To, to me, it's a little bit like uh, kind of like car sickness. It, you know, you, you start feeling a little queasy and 
the longer you go in it, the worse you feel. And next thing you know, you, you, you're thinking, Man, I got to get some relief here. Uh, this is not good. And uh, it's only getting worse. And you just want more than anything to stop, stop the plane. Stop. I want to get off the plane. Where's the parachute or stop the car? I need to be on solid ground. I want things to stop moving. I want to be able to take a, a fresh breath so I can feel better. It's just that miserable feeling. And when it comes to guilt, you know, there's no pill you can take that will cure it. It doesn't go away on its own. It's just this, this burden, a great burden of debt that we want to get out from under and it is a pervasive feeling. It is a feeling that is universal. If you're thinking nobody else has felt as bad as I have for the things I've done, you're wrong because it's a universal feeling. Everybody has sensed it. And not always to just a little bit, but sometimes greatness. And so I would argue, and I think the psalmist in Scripture would argue, that there's a sense in which all of humanity is looking for a way to get out from under the burden of guilt. And it's a real burden. John 16, 18. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit or John, the gospel of John says that the Holy Spirit is busy at work. And one of the things that he's doing is convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And so it's. And that's why we can't escape it, because it's a, there's a supernatural power at work bringing to our mind, making us cognizant. And also the emotions come into it as well, that we bear a sense of guilt because we are indeed guilty. So we're trying to find ways out of it. Now, Sigmund Freud, and I'll talk a little bit about him, quote him a little more later on, says... Guilt is crafty, a trickster, a chameleon capable of disguising itself, hiding out, changing its size and appearance, even its location, all the while managing to persist and deepen. And so sometimes the sense of guilt is, is so great, we're not always sure where it's coming from. We're not always sure what we have done, which which sin is it that's making me feel this way or what's not right. And it has different ways of manifesting itself. We all have maybe different ways of dealing with it or or trying to resolve it. So unresolved guilt just kind of leaks out in it and it spills out on other areas of our lives. It spills out on other areas of our lives to the extent that even the things that were so good and so enjoyable and, and delightful, it spills out on them and has a way of defiling those as well. And you say what? How could that be? What are you talking about? Well, just for example, take about uh, the example of a spouse that has committed adultery. It's somebody that has had an affair. I mean, nothing is the same anymore. All of the goodness that you once experienced, the, the things that triggered beautiful memories and the sense that 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 triggered feelings of security they're gone and sometimes it's turned just to hurt and to hatred. And you can just walk into a room where at once you experience such peace. And now everything you look at, everything you you smell, you're just, there's this new awareness 
that it's all spoiled now. It's gone. It's different. Nothing is the same. So guilt does that. Sin does that. It just it has a tendency to even ruin the greatest things and subtracts from the joys of our lives. Back in the garden, it was guilt that ruined the peace and joy and the harmony that Adam and Eve were experiencing when they ate of the forbidden fruit. The one role that the one thing that they could not do is what they did. And immediately, how did they respond? Everything in creation was was different now. They looked at themselves differently. They looked at one another differently. They looked at God differently. The way they tried to deal with it is they covered up. Let's get some leaves. No, I need bigger ones. No, you got any bigger ones on that tree so I can cover my shame? And then, and then they hid from God. So, so creation wasn't the same. Relationships weren't the same. Everything's suspicious now. They don't know who to trust. David said in verse 17, bring me out of my distress. I, I want out. I want out of this. I can't blame him. I want out too. It's a terrible feeling of wrongdoing, knowing that I participated in something and broke a standard, a universal standard. A few weeks ago, I mentioned that I had read a very, very intriguing article about guilt. It just really kind of caught my attention and I Spent my Saturday morning trying to read it and understand it and digest it. I want to share some of that with you this morning. And the, the uh, title of this article was The Persistence of Guilt. That's why it got my attention. The Persistence of Guilt. What does this person have to say about that? It's written by Dr. Wilford McClay. I don't know much about him. I think he's a professor, I want to say, at uh, Ohio State University. I don't again, I don't know much about him, but I can tell you if you read the whole article, the way he describes the doctrine of forgiveness and redemption, it's right on. So if he's not a believer, he sure knows what believers think. Here's a few quotes from his opening paragraphs. Those of us living in the developed countries of the West find ourselves in the tightening grip of a paradox. It is the strange persistence of guilt as a psychological force in modern life. Guilt has not merely lingered. It has grown into an ever more powerful and pervasive element in the life of the contemporary West. Even as the rich language formerly used to define it has withered and faded from discourse. And the means of containing its effects, let alone obtaining relief from it, have become ever more elusive. And what he's saying is that for the last several hundred years, we have tried very hard to not think about guilt, to escape it. We've redefined sin and guilt. Uh, We've tried to talk ourselves out of it, denied it. We've worked very hard at finding ways to get rid of it. And feel better about ourselves. And what he's saying is that the paradox is, though, as aggressive as we have been to fight against it, it's only tightened its grip on us. It's only become more and more present. It won't go away. And so how powerful is it? He says, 
The paradox has set up a condition in which the phenomenon of rising guilt becomes both a byproduct and an obstacle of civilizational advance. The stupendous achievements of the West in improving the material conditions of human life and extending the blessings of liberty and dignity to more and more people are in danger of being countervailed and even neglected or negated by a growing burden of guilt that poisons our social relations and hinders our efforts to live happy and harmonious lives. We are in an era in the history of mankind where mankind has never been freer. We have never had more freedoms than we have now, especially, of course, in the West. We have never been safer. We have never we have never been um, more prosperous. I mean, we are just incredibly blessed. And so. In light of that, we should be the happiest generation. We should be the happiest people. And we're not. Relationships are still strained. What he's saying is that the guilt, the areas of life that are the most important to us, that we get the most joy out of, like relationships, are still under a terrible, terrible strain. And though we should be jumping for joy at the freedoms that we have and how prosperous we are, we still don't. And it's hindering us. It's hindering the the harmony and our happiness. So all of this external blessing that is out there to us has not been transferred internally, so to speak, into an internal happiness So the philosophy of of prosperity and even freedom, external freedoms have not been enough to relieve us from this sense of guilt. And he goes on to say that the seed, the seed bed of guilt is responsibility. Responsibility. What we mean by that is that with ability, perhaps you've heard it with ability comes Responsibility. There's the sense that we're held accountable for what we have, what we're able to do, the powers that we have. When we know more and can do more, it makes us more responsible. If you are an older sibling, you know this. Mom and dad have probably reminded you of this sometime during your childhood because you're the oldest sibling. Sibling, And what happens is the younger sibling, uh, in ignorance, folly, whatever, doesn't really know better the full extent, does something really silly, makes a mess or whatever. Mom and dad come into the room. What is going on here? Well, little juniors doing such and such. And, and you say to the older sibling, well, what were you doing while this was going on? Why did you allow this to happen? You should know better. You're more mature. You're more experienced. You're wiser. In other words, you're accountable. So the abilities that you have are also um, harnessed in great, great responsibility. And McClay goes on to say that because we have achieved so much, we feel even a greater sense of responsibility and accountability to the point where the guilt just compounds upon us. You say, well, that's 
that's a that's an interesting thought. But is it biblical? Is it scriptural? Well, Jesus put it like this in Luke chapter 12, verse 48. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. The idea is those that didn't know as much, uh, they, they still did wrong and they're still countable, so they get a light beating. But the ones who really knew and didn't act on what they knew, they're the ones where the law really comes down. The, the idea is that the beating is great, not light. And this actually is not just pulled out to support my point. This context of Luke is Jesus is telling the disciples, you've got to be ready because the kingdom is coming and the judgment is coming. And those of you who have been given so much regarding truth and gospel living and all the blessings, you are even more accountable to be ready and to help others be ready. Because of what you have been given. So you, you can't act on ignorance. You can't claim innocence in these situations. It's, it's the concept of the master over his household. And when the, 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 the owner comes back, how will he find it? I've put these things under your charge. When I return, how will I find them? How responsible have you been with what I have given you? So the more we know, the more accountable we are. And of course, that's kind of condemning, isn't it? Because don't we live in an era where modern technology has literally put everything at our fingertips? I mean, is there anything we can't know in a matter of seconds with our smartphones? Just Google it. And it's wonderful. It's, it's an incredible blessing. And it is an incredible responsibility to be so advanced. To have so much technology, to be so free, to be so wealthy, to have so much. And he, he goes on to say, here's how guilt has a tendency to work its way out in people's minds. Whatever donation I make to charitable organization, it can never be as much as I could have given. I can never diminish my carbon footprint enough or give to the poor enough or support medical research enough or otherwise do the things that would render me morally blameless. Colonialism, slavery, structural poverty, water pollution, deforestation. There's an endless list of items for which you and I can take the rap. To be found blameless is a pipe dream for the demands on an active conscience are literally as endless as an active imagination's ability to conjure them. And he goes on to say that some people don't know how to stop this guilt and the thoughts of guilt and the active imagination. And he says they can't see a logical place to stop. Indeed, when any of us reflects on the brute fact of our being alive and taking up space on this planet, consuming resources that could have met some other more worthy need, we may be led to feel guilty about the very fact that we exist. And there are people that literally feel guilty 
because they exist. It's guilt gone wild, you might say. Because we can always do better, can't we? And so conceivably, we can feel guilty about absolutely everything. And again, the point is that the paradox is that as a society, we have done so much to try to get out of this feeling. So much to, to, to avoid it and to escape it. And it's only getting worse. Well, what are some false alternatives to guilt? What are some of these things that we have as a society tried to do to get out of it? Well, back in the... Late 1800s, a psychiatrist and philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, you know, you, you've probably heard of him. <clears throat> well, his answer to relieving us from guilt was to come out with the infamous words, God is dead. He was a materialist. He was an atheist. He did not believe in anything metaphysical, supernatural. This is all we have. And he said, look, basically his good news was this. God is dead. Therefore, guilt is dead because if there's no God, then there's no real sense of accountability to some kind of universal person or greater being and superior laws and standards. Therefore, you don't have to feel guilty anymore because God is dead. So that was his great news to the people in his age. God's a thing of the past. Didn't work. People still felt guilty. It well, sounded good, I guess, at the time. And you'd think, well, okay, but if he said guilt is just a fake feeling because God is dead, it's not even a real thing, then, then why do so many people feel guilty to begin with? And his answer was, well, way back in the primitive tribes, uh, when an ancestor died, those that remained living felt this sense of loyalty to honor them. Perhaps they did something great, something very useful. Perhaps our generation is benefiting from something that the deceased have done. And so we want to honor them. And so they started to find ways to do that. And then it turned from the ancestors became so great. It became God, God's little G and, and worship began to ensue. And then it culminated in the great Christian God, the one God who was over all who he says brought, and I quote, the greatest feeling of indebtedness on earth. It's the Christian God's fault that people feel so indebted because belief in someone who is so superior and perfect and holy can only leave us with a sense of guilt. So, of course, his answer was to get rid of that guilt. Then a little bit later, of course, that didn't work. A little bit later, we have another name that you will be familiar with, Sigmund Freud. And he said that no guilt is a real thing. People really do feel guilt. It's not fake. There's a huge problem. People were coming to him as a psychoanalyst with all of this heaviness and all these life issues and problems. And he said, oh, it's absolutely real. But his solution was to do this. Your guilt is not because you have violated some higher moral standard. He he removed the guilt out from an objective violation and stuck it under a subjective feeling. It's just something is wrong in your mind. You're not thinking right about yourself. And that's why you feel so bad about yourself. And then all the emphasis, this is the age of, of therapy. We're still kind of in it. 
All the emphasis becomes about how can I make you feel good about yourself? If you have come to my therapy lessons and enough of them, I will help you think right. And therefore, you will no longer feel bad about yourself, but you will feel good about yourself. So everything kind of turned into about, well, the way to get rid of guilt is just try to find ways to feel good about yourself. Have positive things and only only look at the things that you've done right. Of course, that did not work either. There's still this sense of uh, indebtedness because you can't remove guilt from objective justice because the whole reason we feel guilty is because we have violated someone and something that is absolutely real. It's not pretend and it's not just about me. So there's some alternative ways to deal with it. What are some ways that we see in our modern age or day that people try to, if it's so pervasive, what do people try to do today to get out from under? Of course, being in the church, we know, and I'll get to that answer towards the end of how you can really get out from under the debt and the burden of guilt. God has provided a way. But what are some other ways that we see today? I'll just mention two, and I got these from his article as well. One of the ways that people try to get out from under the terrible misery of guilt today is by attaching themselves to uh, important causes, what they would say are important causes. They, they join a cause, they join a fight, they, they get very impassioned about it, right or wrong. Some are right, some are wrong, but they get very impassioned about it. They, they throw their whole weight behind it, their resources, they fight for it, and it gives them a sense of goodness. It makes them feel like, well, at least I'm, I'm doing something really good and right in this area of my life, and it helps soothe the pain of all of the other indebtedness they feel. So we have very, very strange causes these days that people just plant their feet on. You think, what are you thinking about this? But they plant their feet on because they want to just feel right. They want to be in right standing. We talked about that as well. They want to feel right about. It. So we have a lot of um, causes today. Environmentalism. Uh, we have uh, PETA. People's protecting animals. Um, it, it's a cause that some people are willing to die for. Uh, equal rights in the form of transgenderism. Uh, people fight for the, the, the idea that. You have every right, if every individual has every right to just decide what gender they want to be and you become very impassioned about it. So there are good causes, there are bad causes, but it's, it's, an, it's a way to feel moral. Another thing that is popular today is victimization. Uh, there's a lot of victimization today, and here's the idea behind this. The idea is that if I can become a victim or be victimized, then I don't owe you. I'm not indebted to you or anybody else. You owe me. You are indebted to me or the universe or somebody. The population is indebted to me because I have been abused. I've been violated. I've been victimized or criminalized. And what it does is it enables us to think that because I have been harmed, I'm not responsible for the way I act and the way I think. You are responsible to do something for me and make me feel better and make amends and pay your debt. So victimization has become a very big and real thing. 
to try to absolve the guilt that we feel. Obviously, I could spend a lot more time on this, but it's just a big picture of where we are as humanity. And we are left still in an age where there are many, many people that are under the burden of guilt and do not know how to get out from under it. There's this sense that I, I owe somebody and I owe them big. And it's not a good feeling. The debt must be paid. So how do we receive a pardon? How do you come out from under the misery? The car, the moral car sickness, you might call it. Well, according to Scripture, the, the sin and guilt has to be paid for. And either you're going to pay the just penalty for it or someone else is going to pay the just penalty for, for it and bear the burden. Can't be repressed. We try that. Paul says in Romans, can't be escaped, can't be denied. It doesn't any, do any good for us to, to deny reality. It's still there. It doesn't go away. And can't be excused with no consequences because the sovereign God has been violated personally because he is the embodiment of the laws. His standards have been violated personally. And his word says that the wages of these violations are death. So blood has to be spilled in order to maintain holiness, rightness and justice. The balance the reason we feel like something isn't right is because something isn't right. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And we, we, we want to try to regain this balance. And Scripture's telling us how to regain that balance. It has to be paid for by the shedding of blood. In the Old Testament, this was done uh, vicariously through animal sacrifice. Who the animals were put to death in place of the sinner by God's act of mercy. Here's a way that you can avoid what is really due you. In the New Testament, of course, Christ becomes the Lamb of God. He becomes the sacrifice. He becomes the burden bearer. And a transaction takes place when Christ pays the price for our debt, our sin, whereby when we place our faith in Him, all of our moral transgression and sin has been placed on Him and paid in full. And therefore, in the moral courts of, of the heavenlies, we, Paul tells us in Romans that the debt has been paid in full by Christ, not by us. Because he's the perfect and holy sacrifice. And when we place our faith in him, it's a, it's a temporary offer of grace and peace by the living God because he is coming back. That's why Hebrews says today is the day of salvation. Don't just assume and presume that every day I'm going to have an opportunity to believe and someday I will. We don't know when that day will end. So today is the day and the grace is offered. In verse 7, David in this psalm says, Remember not the sins of my youth and, or my transgressions. So on what basis is he appealing to get out from under the burden of guilt? According to your steadfast love, remember me. Don't remember me based on what bad I did or what good I did. Remember me based on how good you are. Remember me based on the fact that you make commitments and keep them. That when you say 
you love me, that you really love me and will always love me. It's a steadfast love. It's a it's a covenant love. It's a it's it's a kind of commitment that will not and cannot be broken because it comes from you. Oh, steadfast God. That's how he wants to be dealt with. And that's how we can come out from under this guilt is ask God, deal with me on the basis of your mercy, on the basis of your provision for salvation, not on my works, not on my deeds. And that's the ground of forgiveness that is guaranteed and promised to humanity by the one and only true God on how to be saved and how to be delivered. It's a provision that has been paid for. It has to be atoned for. It's a costly transaction. It cost Christ, the Son of God, His life. Separation on the cross from God the Father because of the sins. But the debt was covered. Our problem isn't that we need more therapy sessions. Our problem is that we need forgiveness from the God that we have violated, that we have offended. We need to take responsibility from that. That's the only way out of the burden of guilt. We need Christ to deny him. You know, the world, some of the world decides God's not real. I don't believe in God. What did that just solve? The problem of evil is still there. The problem of guilt. So I'm going to solve my problem of brokenness and misery by saying there's no God. What did I just do? Nothing. I didn't change anything in the world. There is a God and he is real. The problem with the world, of course, is that it is broken. And who broke it? You did. I did. Now think with me as I wind down here and we prepare for worship. Think about the cosmic treason that took place in the garden. And of course, we were all there in Adam. The one test the, the forbidden fruit was like the one button that operates the whole universe. There's one button that if you push, shuts it all down, messes it all up, every square inch of it. This is the one button you can't push. Now, they're living in innocence, harmony, and what do they do? They push the one button they were told not to push. And what was the effect? Not just a personal effect. And some of us say, well, let me just come over here in my corner of the world and, and sin. I'm not bothering anybody else. That's not how sin works. Sin is cosmic. It's threaded throughout everything. What happened when Adam and Eve sinned? The whole universe began to shut down. It, it was all broken. Immediately, creation starts moaning and groaning as if, what have you just done? What did you just do to me? Something isn't right. It was because of the moral failure of man. It affects everything. And in essence, we are guilty. Because violating God's principles, we are guilty for all the pestilence. We are guilty for all the famine, for all the disease, all the evil and, and the badness that has come into this world. We are guilty and accountable for because we say no to God and we want to be God. That's how guilty we are. 
How do we get out from under that? There's one way. And though we don't deserve it, though we deserve to be put to death, though we we deserve to be hanged until dead, so to speak. God came to Adam and Eve with the provision of this animal sacrifice, which was a picture of Christ. And you can be forgiven. The, the one that we violated and offended, he comes down and become, takes the punishment that we deserve. The judge. It's unheard of. It's grace. It's mercy. And when we ask God's forgiveness, we come clean and we own it. And we say, yes, I can't do it myself. I can't come out from under it. I can only believe in you and trust in your promise and live by the promise. Then our problem now is what to do with all the love. What to do with all the mercy. And that's what we're doing here this morning. How do you resolve that problem? You just come and you give your life to Him. You throw your whole being behind Him. And you worship Him for all your worth. And that's what we want to do today. And that's why we're here. And as we worship God and as we come and partake of communion, probably one of the guys is going to say, What Jesus said, my body broken for you. You broke the world. And here's my body broken for you. So that you will not be broken for your transgression. What a marvelous, glorious God we serve. And how worthy is he to be worshipped. So let's get right with God this morning. Don't leave this place. Under guilt and condemnation, that's real. It's not going to go away till you come to the cross. May God bless the preaching of his word.